Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask your blessing on our time together in your word. Spirit, take it, apply it, and use it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought it would be fun to begin our time together this morning with a little game. We're going to call this game, Fill in the Missing Half of the Conversation. We're going to imagine a conversation between two of our favorite elders here at Cornerstone. This is Caleb Coaston and Isaac Tolliver, of course. And for the first round of the game, um, we are only going to get to see Isaac's side of this conversation. So we're going to see what Isaac is saying, and then we're going to have to imagine or try to fill in the missing half of the conversation. Okay, you got the game? It's pretty simple. Let's begin. Hey, Caleb, this is a great fire. No kidding. I got fish. Why is he wearing that mask? Okay, you got it? That's one half of a conversation. Now, as we're trying to fill in the missing half of the conversation, we recognize right off the bat that we have a problem, right? And the problem is, is that we don't have uh, any context in which this conversation is taking place. We don't know maybe some of the surrounding features that might help us make sense of what we just saw, nor do we have really any information in the text itself that we had here in Isaac's case. We see that there is some comment about having fish and as well as about someone wearing a mask. But outside of that, we know nothing. In order to rightly understand this conversation and fill in the missing half, we would clearly need context and more information. But since we don't have it, we can pretty much make up whatever we want, right? We can make up any scenario possible to make this make sense. For example, hey, Caleb. Hey, Isaac. Hold. <laughs> this is a great fire. I know. Isn't it crazy that the log I just put in is the same shape as the mole on Jordan's back? <laughs> no kidding. Hey, totally unrelated. Do you want some Swedish fish? I got fish. Fine, you don't have to be such a jerk about it. It doesn't matter. I stole all the Swedish fish. Why is he wearing that mask? 
because he's the infamous Swedish fish thief. So that works, right? Okay, just, just at face value, I made sense of the other half of the conversation. I mean, there was no context in which to use as a judge. There was no other information that I could use potentially to work that out. And so I just created a second half of the conversation that made sense. But let's play this again. But this time, I will give you a context and I will give you some additional information. And let's see how it maybe changes the way we imagine the missing half of the conversation. The context this time will be uh, the elder retreat in 2015. So this was two elder retreats ago now. Uh, this was in my little imagined scenario here, Caleb and Isaac's night to make dinner for the other elders. This is why they're standing in front of a fireplace, holding fireplace utensils. In terms of additional information, if we were to somehow go further into the conversation, you would see that they eventually share their favorite Pinterest post about uh, recipes for uh, cooking trout. And they also then take some time to pray for my mental state, okay? So that's some additional information and a context. Now let's play the game again and see how that context and information might help us reimagine the conversation. Hey, Caleb. Hey, Isaac. This is a great fire. I know. We should cook something delicious on it, because that's how Caleb talks all the time. <laughs> no kidding. I wish we had some seafood. I got fish. Awesome. Let's make a nice dinner for the elders. You guys know I hate seafood. <laughs> Why is he wearing that mask? Because he's Batman. Okay, uh, it was funnier in my office, all right, I promise you. And as I have said to you before, I say it now again, you all paid me to do that this week. Thank you so much. You know, uh, apart perhaps from the ending of that, uh, Caleb's portion of the conversation that we imagined on that third round at least made sense, right? Because I gave you a context of them making dinner. I gave you some additional information that they were going to share uh, trout recipes. And so we were able to imagine at least a scenario that fit the overall context of what we saw on Isaac's side with some sense of, of logic. Now, whether or not, of course, that's exactly what Caleb would have said, we don't know, but it, it at least fit the clues. Now, on a, a far, far, far less silly note, Please understand that this is effectively what we do every time we sit down to read one of the New Testament letters. These are letters. These are half of a conversation in a sense. So, so if I just use Galatians as our example, reading the letter to the Galatians is kind of like reading half of a conversation. Paul is clearly responding to things. He's addressing things. Something is going on on the other side of the conversation that we can't necessarily see. So all we have is that one half of the conversation, and we're trying to look at the context, the larger context in which Galatians fits, as well as any additional clues that we can find in the text in order to figure out what that other half of the conversation is so that we can rightly read and interpret what Paul is saying in this letter. Does that make sense, at least, what I'm, where I'm going with this? And this is all part of the process of doing what we call a book introduction. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday, I introduced this idea of a book introduction to us. I said a book introduction is an academic term that we use to describe the process of asking and answering a series of questions when we sit down to study a particular book of the Bible. Questions like, who wrote it? Um, who was it written to? What style or genre was it written in? When was it written? Why was it written? Things like that. And last week, we asked and answered two, the first two of those questions, who wrote it 
and to whom was it written? In terms of, of who, the, who wrote the letter, as you see here in verses 1 and 2, it is Paul and the brothers who are with him. So Paul is clearly the main or the primary writer. He's the one doing the writing itself, but he is representing a larger group of, of brothers, of believers, who maybe all share a similar concern for what's happening here in Galatia. In terms of who it's written to, again, as you see here in verse 2, it's written to the churches of Galatia. Uh, now, I did test both services last week with a trick question. I said, you know, do you, who remembers what happened when Paul visited the city of Galatia in the book of Acts? And I am happy to report that nobody fell for the trick question. I was really worried about it, though, because I didn't have a plan for what would happen if someone raised their hand, except to maybe humiliate them publicly. But I didn't have to do that. Uh, Galatia, as you all know, is not a city. It is a region. It's a Roman province. And on Paul's first missionary journey, he visits at least four cities there in southern Galatia. And so that's what we learned last week. And today we're going to pick up right where we left off. Just no, no pause at all pick up right where we left off, and we'll finish answering the remaining questions as we prepare ourselves to dig into the book of Galatians. Our third question that I gave to you was, what style or genre is the letter of Galatians or letter to the Galatians written in? And I'll give you an easy, quick answer first, and then I'll give you an easy, just slightly less quick answer second. The easy, quick answer is that it's a letter. I've been using that word, so you should have figured that out already. It's a letter. It, it looks like a letter. It has an opening where Paul identifies himself and who he's writing to. It has a body where he develops the message that he wants to communicate, and it has a closing or a conclusion to it where he sums it all up and effectively says goodbye. It has all the normal things you would expect to find in a letter. The still easy but just slightly less quick answer, though, is that it's not just any kind of letter. It is what we would call a polemic. Now, does that word mean anything to anyone in here, a polemic? If it doesn't, a polemic is a way of referring to something that is argumentative or, or like fighting in nature. It, it, it wants to pick a fight. It wants to put up its dukes and, and get to work on something, right? It, it's, it's that kind of a letter. And the tone of Paul's letter to the Galatians is different than any of his other letters you read in the New Testament. From, from throughout the letter here, Paul's going to be saying things that are specifically designed to either defend himself and his message, or they are specifically designed to attack someone else or someone's else and their message. It's not that he doesn't defend himself in others, other letters of his or that he doesn't attack occasionally in other letters of his, just never to this extent. This entire letter is start to finish an extended argument for the purity of of the gospel. So it's a letter, it is a polemic, it is Paul's argumentative response to a situation, and we need to keep that in mind. Question number four, when was it written? Well, I'm going to keep this relatively short, but I should just let you know up front that um, this is one of the most hotly debated questions surrounding the book of Galatians. The reason why it's so hotly debated goes back to actually one of our questions from last Sunday. You probably don't remember me saying this, but when I started answering the question about who this letter was written to, I said I was only going to partially answer it last week. Well, the reason I said that is because of, of the, the debate and the issues here that are surrounding this. Um, I showed you this map, right? I showed it to you again this morning. I showed you this map last week, and I indicated to you last Sunday that this letter is being written to this group of churches down here in the southern part of Galatia. So they're southern, they like sweet tea, right, and grits, and Nash chariot. Uh, I don't know their form of racing, but there you go. 
I said this to you, that was funnier in my office as well. I said this to you because I believe this is the correct answer. That this is, these are the recipients of, of the letter to the Galatians, these four southern churches. However, it's only fair that I note that not everyone believes this. Some scholars disagree and they think, no, it's not written to these four churches down here. Paul is writing to a completely different group of churches located somewhere up here in northern Galatia. Galatia. And the reasons for believing this are rather long and complicated, and believe me, it will not help you at all for me to go through them this morning. It would just take up a bunch of time and, and get us nowhere. The question you should be asking is, what difference does it make for, for us here in terms of our study of Galatians? Well, here's the big answer. In terms of our understanding of the letter to the Galatians, it makes no difference whatsoever. Zero. And the reason why it makes no difference whatsoever is because whether it's written to the churches in the north or the churches in the south or the churches in the east or the west or on the moon, it wouldn't make a difference. The issue that is affecting these churches stays the same. And the issue is not affected by their geography, by where they're located. So then you might ask, well, why does it matter? Well, it matters because it affects when we think this letter was written and therefore where it fits in the timeline of the book of Acts. Again, without going into all the complicated details because volumes have been written on this, if you believe that uh, this letter was written to the churches in southern Galatia, then that is going to force you for a number of reasons to see this as being Paul's first letter. Probably written, you say, well, when, give me an idea, probably written sometime immediately after his first missionary journey and maybe even before, but more likely right after the Council of Jerusalem there in Acts 15. If you think it's written to the churches in the north, then it's going to make you or cause you to believe that this letter is written much later on, probably during or after his third missionary journey. And so it doesn't affect our understanding of Galatians at all. What it really affects is our understanding of Acts and how we correlate the information that's given in Galatians with what we see there in Acts. In fact, in your bulletin this week, you have a question. I think it's the third one I gave you. It's to look at a passage in Galatians and then look at a passage in Acts and see if you can synthesize them, put them together, cause them to overlap in a way, and you'll begin to understand some of why where we view this matters. After having studied it out myself, I am personally convinced it's written to the churches in the South, and so I see it as being Paul's earliest letter. And so I'm going to treat this letter that way throughout the rest of our time in Galatians, unless I change my mind for some reason, and we'll also view it in the book of Acts accordingly. Now, one final question, and we're done with our book introduction. You're like, wow, we're going fast. Yes, we were. Uh, now we slow down. This is, in a way, I think, the most important question to answer as we begin our study of the book of Galatians, and it's this question, why was it written? Why is, has this letter been written in the first place? And, and I tried to help you begin thinking about that answer actually last Sunday at the end of our message, as well as in the bulletin, the three questions I gave you the, uh, to look, work through this week. Because I wanted you to begin to at least consider what's going on. Last Sunday, I ended our time together by asking you this. I said, if you were in Paul's shoes and you had spent all this time in, in, in these cities and you had seen so much fruit from the gospel, and at the same time, you had experienced so much suffering. Remember all that Paul went through there in Acts 13 and 14? You'd experienced so much suffering. How do you think you would feel if someone came in after you left and attempted to destroy the message you preached, and with it, the people you had preached it to. Do you remember me ending that way last week? 
And then in your bulletin, I gave you those three questions. I said, uh, the first one was about, why does Paul emphasize his apostleship so much there in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1? I mean, he, he regularly introduces himself as an apostle, but, but that's a little unusual how much he talks about it there in Galatians 1. The second one asked you to compare Acts 13 and 14 to Galatians 1, 6 through 10. And I just tried to get you to think of what the problem might be that's going on there in the Galatian churches. And then the third question I asked you to guess at was, who do you think the culprit might be? I mean, based on what you see in Acts 13 and 14 and the situation that's occurring there, who do you think might be behind these problems? Well, let me see now if I can walk us through some of that here over the next few minutes and try to help answer some of these questions. Since I told you that this is a polemic, that it is an argumentative, fighting kind of letter, it should be perfectly clear that there is a problem in the book of Galatians, okay, in the Galatian churches. There's something that Paul feels the need to, to argue with them about, to fight for, etc. And you know, it's really interesting. If you uh, look at all the rest of Paul's letters, pretty much, I think, without fail, at the, uh, right after his salutation, and the salutation is where he says, I, Paul, to whoever, uh, grace and peace to you. You know what I'm talking about at the beginning of each of his letters? Pretty much in every other one of his letters, the first thing that follows that is either a thanksgiving or some kind of prayer for the people he's writing to. So, you know, I thank my God always upon every remembrance of you, da-da-da. Or he says, I pray for you in all my prayers that you may be, da-da-da. Do you know what I'm talking about? Every other letter except this one. As you look at verse 6, notice that what he follows his salutation with is not a thanksgiving. It's not a prayer of any sort. It is a very sharp rebuke. I am astonished. And you can hear the scolding tone in the language. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So what's the problem in Galatia? I think it's pretty clear. It's that there is, for some unknown reason, and at the prompting of some unknown group, a different gospel being preached. People are being urged to turn away from the gospel of grace that Paul preached to some new and different gospel. But having said that now, Paul wants to be extremely clear at this point it's not really just a different gospel. It is, it is not a gospel because there is no other gospel. Whatever is being proclaimed to them, it's not a variation of the gospel. It's not just a, another alternative. It's not like you can go to the, the car dealership and like, you know, I'd like to pay for the upgrade on the leather, you know, but I don't want to pay for the upgrade on Jesus. I'll take the lower model gospel. There's no, there's no sense of that. This is a false gospel. And Paul says that it is being proclaimed to the Galatians by people who have two distinct goals here in verse 7. Number one, they want to trouble. And we're not going to address this today, but it's an interesting word choice here. They want to trouble. They want to disturb the believers. And then number two, they want to distort. And the Greek word here means to radically change. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now note at this moment, Paul is not telling us how they are distorting it nor is he telling us uh, exactly what's going on. Again, he just wants to be very clear because changing or distorting the gospel, it is no small matter. It is an issue of eternal life and death. And so he says to them here in verse 8, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel 
contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now let's just stop and consider this comment here in verse 8 for just a moment. He gives two scenarios, kind of two little hypotheticals. First, he imagines a scenario where maybe he and the people that he was with who went to Galatia originally, they show back up into town and they're like, hey, Galatians, hey, everybody, it's good to see you. Sorry, it's been a while. I got I to gotta tell you something. You know, that gospel I preached to you last time, I left out some stuff. Or I realized I was wrong. Or I found some new information. I should drop that here. So, you know, here's some stuff to add. Here's some stuff to fix. This is like gospel 2.0. It's the upgrade. You guys all should, should get it and install it immediately. This is the first scenario he imagines is that he and his ministry partners come back and re-preach the gospel. The second one is a little more dramatic. It's that of an angel from heaven appearing before them proclaiming another gospel than the one Paul preached. So imagine you're the Galatian churches, you've gathered together on a Sunday morning and you're worshiping and learning together and all of a sudden, you know, light and, ah, and harps and whatever else happens, right? And an angel appears to you and he's like, now listen, I, the angel so-and-so, have a new gospel for you. So, so you've got these two imagined hypothetical situations. He says, if either of those were to occur, the person or the being who preached that gospel to you, this new gospel that is contrary to the one that I preached to you originally, that person should be accursed. Now, we hear the word accursed, and we don't think anything of it. It doesn't even really stand out to us. When we think of something being cursed or accursed, we just kind of think of that as referring to something like bad things are going to happen. Oh, that guy is cursed. Like everything he touches falls apart. Or this day is cursed. Everything is going wrong. My dad had a favorite curse he would pronounce on people from time to time. He used to say, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. That was my dad's curse if he was going to give you one. But for, for Paul's original readers, when they saw that word, they're not sitting there thinking, oh, well, people who do this are just going to have bad things happen to them. That's not the meaning of that word at all. Let me read it to you literally translated. It means, let them go to hell. Now, it doesn't, it sounds like the way our culture today likes to use that phrase in a very negative and kind of like snarky way, um, just when they're mad with someone. Paul's not using it that way. He means it literally. Let that person be now and forevermore under the eternal punishment and judgment of God. May they burn in the fires of hell forever. Accursed. It's a strong, strong word, not regularly used and not lightly used either. And Paul applies it to himself. Listen, if I were to show back up in your church Derby, in your church Lystra, in your church Iconium, in your church Antioch, if I were to show up and say, I've got gospel 2.0, I should burn in hell forever. If an angel appeared to you in the middle of one of your services and says, I have a new and different gospel for you, that angel should be under God's divine wrath and judgment from now through all eternity. That's a, that's a strong statement. It's an incredibly strong statement. And to make it even stronger, Paul purposefully repeats it. He says in verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, me, angels, 
anyone else comes to you with a gospel that is contrary to the one you received, let whoever that is be accursed. Let them go to hell forever. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they say. The gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ that I preached to you when I came to you that first time, that's the only gospel there is. It is the one and only gospel there is, and anyone who preaches anything different to you, let them be accursed. All right, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling pretty confident at this point saying that the problem in Galatian, in the Galatian churches is that somebody's preaching a different gospel. Agreed? Easy enough? Pretty clear? Now, okay, now that we understand that that is the problem that Paul feels so passionate about that he needs to fight for and be argumentative about with them, two other additional questions now sort of pop into my mind. Number one, how did these false teachers go about teaching this new gospel? And then number two, why would they want to? And the answers to these two questions are separate, but I think they are related. First, how do these false teachers go about changing the gospel? Well, apparently, in order to change the gospel that Paul preached, the first thing they felt the need to do was to attack Paul. I mean, that makes sense, right? Logically, if Paul really is an apostle, if he really has been chosen by Jesus to communicate truth to the church, well, then whatever he says is authoritative and they have to listen to it. But what if Paul isn't what he claimed to be? What if Paul was a liar? What if Paul is a fraud? What if Paul is a fake? Well, see, if I can discredit the messenger, then I can clearly discredit his message. And that appears to be what they do here. As you look through the book of Galatians, you're going to see Paul defending himself a lot. In fact, I think it's why he belabors the point so much about him being an apostle here in verse 1. As you compare that to any other book in the, in, of Paul's letters, any other of Paul's letters, you never see him talk about this as much. He identifies himself pretty regularly as an apostle, but here he's like, listen, I'm an apostle. It's not from man. No group of men elected me. I didn't make this up on my own. I am an apostle because I was chosen by Jesus Christ, by God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is Paul's way of flexing his apostolic authority in a right way. He's flexing it, and you're going to continue to see him flex that apostolic authority throughout the book. In order to attack the message, they first attack the messenger, and so Paul is going to defend himself in the book of Galatians as a means of defending the gospel. Is that clear? He's not just defending himself because he's like offended, he doesn't want them to think bad. No, they've attacked him in order to attack the gospel. He's going to defend himself in order to defend the gospel. And so we're going to see that here throughout the letter. Now, second question, why would these people want to change it? Well, I think that the answer to this question somewhat depends on who you think the main culprits behind this attack are. Um, we can pretend for a moment that we're Columbo, which I just lost like anyone under the age of 25. We're going to pretend for a moment to be detectives, okay, just in general, and we're going to have two groups of suspects, and we're going to consider what will happen with each group of suspects and how maybe why they would do it and which one is more likely. Group number one, I'll just refer to as the unbelieving Jews. Now, as you look through Acts 13 and 14, it's very, very clear that in most or all of those Galatian cities, there was strong opposition to Paul and his gospel by these Jews who did not believe, okay? They, they, 
They, they um, were told specifically that they become jealous of Paul. We see that they harass him. They run him out of town. Eventually, they try to kill him. They attack him and try to execute him, but they fail. Clearly, they don't like Paul. Clearly, they don't like his gospel. And it's not really all that hard to understand why in their minds. You know, from their perspective, he is trying to change Judaism. He's trying to change their religion. For years, uh, since Abraham, since Moses, we've been doing things this way. And now here comes Paul, and he's like, hey, no more sacrifices, no more circumcision. Now you don't have to be uh, one of the, the children of Abraham to be considered a child of God. Jews and Gentiles are all together. He's trying to change the law we can't let that happen. And so they get angry and they fight and they attack him. So then doesn't it make sense that, that after Paul left, because eventually he leaves, that after Paul left, they would continue to be antagonistic towards the gospel and those who believed it? Do you think it was like, oh, well, Paul's gone. Okay, now you can believe what you want. You know, Don't worry now, we're not mad with anyone else who thinks that Moses is done. You just keep going on. No, that doesn't make any sense at all. So it's, it would be my expectation in these Galatian churches that, that the unbelieving Jewish community in particular was persecuting and attacking the Christians to some extent. Well, isn't it possible that maybe, and I'm just you know reading the other half of a conversation here, trying to imagine it for a moment, isn't it possible that maybe um, after a certain amount of time of external persecution trying to destroy the gospel, they decide, yeah, this isn't working um, I know maybe we should go from the inside out. Maybe we should plant a cancer on the inside and let that thing grow and try to destroy the gospel and these Christians from the inside out. Is that possible? Sure. That is, that is a possible group who could possibly be doing these things for that possible reason. But personally, I don't think that's our best option. I think it's possible, but I just don't think it is the best option. I think there is a second group that would seem far more likely, given the evidence in the text, and I'm going to call this group the believing Jews. Notice I put the word believing in quotations here. Again, I'm assuming that the opposition to Paul and his message continued on even after Paul left. I can't see any reason why we would think the unbelieving Jews would quit persecuting the gospel, quit persecuting the church, or be less antagonistic afterwards. So I'm guessing that all the Christians who remain, they are under some level of attack, some level of persecution by these unbelieving Jews on the outside. And as I, again, try to picture the other half of the conversation, I could see something like this occurring, that you'd have a group of of Jews who had claimed to come to faith in Christ who were like, man, why are our Jewish brothers so angry with us all the time now? Why don't they like us anymore? Why don't they like the message of the gospel so much? Well, I know why. It's because of, it's because of Paul. Paul came in and, and said that no longer did it matter for Jew and Greek. Now we can all be the children of God. Paul came in and said, no longer do we have to keep the law in order to be made right with God. Now it's through faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. Now there's no more Moses. Now there's no more circumcision. Now there's no more Old Testament law. Man, maybe we should bring all that stuff back and combine it with Jesus in order to not make our brothers so angry with us. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's combine it all. Let's say you have to have Jesus and you have to be circumcised. Let's say you have to have Jesus and you have to follow the law. Let's say you have to have Jesus and you have to have Moses. Put the two together, then it won't be so unpopular. Obviously, I don't know that that's what happened. 
but it would sure make sense within the larger context of Galatians. I mean, just as our, our first and easiest example, look at verse 10. Paul asks two rhetorical questions here, and then he makes a statement. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. My assumption here is that Paul is contrasting himself with these false teachers. Hey, I'm not the one who is worried about pleasing man. I'm not the one who is seeking the approval of man. These guys over here, clearly, they want man's approval. They want men to be happy with them. And so they're going to do certain things to make people happy with them. I'm not worried about pleasing man. I'm just trying to please God. If I was trying to please man, clearly, I would not be a servant of Christ. Because Paul recognizes that being a servant of Christ means that you're going to say things and do things that are not going to be popular or well-received by many. And so I think our troublemakers here are more likely the second group, a group of people who at some point, or maybe even while Paul is writing, are claiming to be believers in Jesus, they're claiming to be Christians, and yet they are undercutting and destroying the gospel by trying to recombine it with aspects of their former religious life in order to make the gospel more pleasing and acceptable to men. I think that's why they want to change it. So to do that, they have to get Paul out of the way. They attack him. They discredit him. They discredit his grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone gospel so they can replace it with a more palatable and popular gospel. This is why Paul is writing. He is writing to respond to that situation. Now, we're done with that. I hope you can see now why doing the book introduction can be so helpful to having a right understanding because now you understand that this is a letter written by Paul and the believers who are with him to these churches here in southern Galatia, probably sometime very early on in Paul's ministry, because there's a group of people who are attempting to discredit him and the gospel he preached and to combine Jesus and the Old Testament law so that they can please men with a new, improved gospel, a more palatable and popular gospel. And isn't that the scenario we find ourselves in today? that all around us are churches and believers and pastors who are willing to improve the gospel, fix the gospel, alter the gospel in some way, shape, or form in order to make it more palatable and popular to the world around us. But, but can I blow your minds for, for something for a moment? The gospel was never intended to be palatable or popular. It's intended to be powerful. Let me say that again because I want you to think about it. The gospel is not intended to be palatable, and it is not intended to be popular. It is intended to be powerful. Jesus said that, that narrow is the way, and few there be who find it. That's not a popular group. Broad is the way, and many who find that one that leads to destruction. That's the popular path. A lot of people go that direction. Not very many people go this direction. The gospel is not meant to be palatable or popular. It's meant to be powerful. And that is why I think Paul's grace and peace statement stands out so much here in Galatians 1. If you know anything about Paul's other letters, you know that every single letter, I think every single letter, no, I don't think I know, every single letter of his ends, the salutation ends with some combination of grace and peace. Now, in all of his other letters, it is at most what you see in verse 3 behind me. It never gets beyond that in any of his other letters. And in some of his letters, it's just three words, grace and peace. That's it. Real fast and done. But in the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, he doesn't just make that statement. He gives them three full verses 
on this. And so I thought we would use this kind of to, to end our time. Let me remind you of, of what these two words mean, their significance here in Paul's writings. They are, in a sense, the bookends of the gospel. You think about this for a moment. On one end, we have grace, right? And we believe that every single component of our salvation is by grace. We are chosen by grace. We are called by grace. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. Everything that we have, is, it, it comes to us by the grace of God. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. I will never stand in heaven and say, look at me. Aren't I so wonderful? I made it because I did X, Y, or Z. Everything we have, grace. On the other end of the gospel, peace, the other bookend, because this is what we get. This is the outcome, so to speak. Now we have peace with God, no longer under his wrath. Now I'm, I'm adopted as a son. We have peace with one another now because now, regardless of our race, ethnicity, background, whatever the case may be, we are one in and through Jesus Christ. We have grace on one end, peace on the other. These are bookends of the gospel. But it's interesting to me that here in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he doesn't simply give them the bookends. He reminds them of everything in between. Just look through it. He reminds them of the deity of Jesus the grace and peace they have. They are from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Lord, he is Christ. He reminds them and us of our condition. We are sinners enslaved to this present evil age. He reminds them of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. He had to give himself for their sins. He reminds them of their present freedom in Christ. His death delivers us from this present evil age. He reminds them of our place in God's eternal plan, all of this happened according to the will of God, and he reminds us of the overarching purpose, binding it all together, which is the eternal glory of God. Three verses and a whole lot packed in between those two bookends of grace and peace. This is the gospel that Paul proclaimed. When he came to them the first time, this is what he told them. This is the gospel we believe. This is the gospel that can never be changed in order to make it more palatable or popular to men because, as Paul says elsewhere, Romans 1, verse 16, this is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes and it needs no improving. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you that this gospel needs no improving. This is this is it. This is all we have. This is our only hope. And any alteration, any distortion of this, it has eternal life and death consequences. This is not a light thing. And so what Paul is addressing in this letter is applicable to us because we are just as tempted today, the church in America is just as tempted today to take this gospel and to change it in order to make it more palatable and more popular to the unbelieving world around us. But you told us, you told us, narrow is the way. Few there be who find it. The popular path is broad. Many will find that one, but it leads to destruction. And so as we work through Galatians in the weeks and months ahead, I pray that you will use it to make us committed to the purity of the gospel, that we will be willing to fight for it, defend it, preach it, and live it, no matter what comes, no matter what persecution we ever face, that this will be the thing that we stay faithful to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.